Francis Chan has purportedly said these words, which I want to begin with today because I think they're very important for us. Our greatest fear should not be of failure, but of succeeding at things in life that don't matter. Our greatest fear should not be of failure, but of succeeding at things in life that don't matter. Now, Jesus, I'm convinced, doesn't plan failure for his disciples. He plans fruitfulness. You believe that? How many of you catch yourself, however, feeling weak and nervous and inadequate to play the part of what Christ wants you to be? You ever find that there are times when you rehearse the script of what life in Christ is supposed to be like, that you often go away feeling a little bit hopeless, that it's really it's not much use to try? You ever ask yourself, how can I ever hope to live a productive, fruitful Christian life? Well, I would dare say that most of us long to be like Jesus. Would you say that? But on the other hand, I would bet that most of us don't think that we can manage it on a daily basis. And so sometimes we just don't try. We deceive ourselves into thinking sometimes, I believe, that it can happen without a lot of effort on our part. In First Things First... A. Roger Merrill tells of a business consultant who decided to landscape his grounds. He hired a woman with a doctorate in horticulture who was extremely knowledgeable. And because the business consultant was very busy and traveled a lot, he kept emphasizing to her over and over again the need to create this garden in a way that would require little or no maintenance on his part. He insisted on automatic sprinklers and other labor-saving devices. And finally, after all of this litany of reminders, she stopped and she said, let me tell you something. There's one thing you need to deal with before we go any further in this endeavor. If there's no gardener, there's no garden. <laughs> there are no labor-saving devices for growing a garden of spiritual virtue. Let me say that again. There are no labor-saving devices for growing a garden of spiritual virtue. Becoming a person of spiritual fruitfulness it requires time, attention, and care. And it requires something else. Staying connected to him and to each other. And often we don't make the connection. We claim we don't have time. But friends, the minute we start thinking that our spiritual garden will thrive on its own is the minute we start to dry up and our lives become unfruitful. Laziness and inattention will kill a garden. That is as true in the spiritual realm as it is in the physical realm. And that is not what Jesus has in mind for me or for you. Jesus doesn't desire failure for his disciples he desires fruitfulness. And cultivating fruitfulness is his concern. It is his greatest desire and his personal expectation for all of us. Our continuing fruitfulness depends first upon our connection, as I said, to him. And that is what John chapter 15 is all about. It's about a vine. It's about vine dressers. It's about branches. It's about flourishing fruit. 
It's about growing and living in a relationship. It's about life in Christ. Turn to John 15 if you're not already there in your Bibles. John 15. I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away, and every branch that bears fruit, he prunes it so that it may bear more fruit. You are already clean because of the word which I have spoken to you. Abide in me, and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, so neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, and you are the branches. He who abides in me, and I in him, he bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away as a branch and dries up, and they gather them and cast them into the fire, and they are burned. If you abide in me, and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. My Father is glorified by this, that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. I'm just going to stop right there. Someone has said that the Gospel of John is like a pool in which a child can wade safely and yet an elephant could swim. I love that description of the Gospel of John. It is both simple and profound. And that's what the Gospel of John is. It speaks to the beginner in the faith as well as the most mature person in the faith. I believe that's absolutely true, that what those statements refer to. And this chapter is one that fits the bill. John 15 is one of the most important chapters in the New Testament, in my opinion, yet it is one of the most difficult ones to grasp. Don't write it off as a familiar passage that you already know all about. It is one of the last teachings that Christ gave to his disciples before he was crucified. Whether he gave it in the upper room during the Last Supper or on his way to the garden where he was about to be betrayed is impossible for us to really pinpoint, but we know one thing, it was something that he deemed important enough to communicate to his disciples before he died. And in this last message recorded by John, Jesus teaches some important truths concerning three vitally important relationships. Mark them. Number one, our relationship to him. It's in verses 1 to 10. Our relationship to each other, in verses 11 to 17. And our relationship to the world around us, that's verses 18 to 27. In fact, these are our stated three active spiritual pursuits as covenant members of Fayette Baptist Church. Isn't that odd? This is what we say when we covenant with one another. Confessing my love for God and my faith in Jesus Christ, I now enter into the membership of this church, and in so doing, I declare my purpose to live a Christian life and to share in the work and the worship of this church by, here it is, actively pursuing Intimacy with God, community with other believers, 
and to be an influence for God's glory upon those outside the church. There they are, those three relationships that Jesus talks about in John 15. But before the last two relationships can ever be totally fulfilled in the right way, our continuing relationship with Christ must be intact. It's vital. And that's our focus for today. So the question I might ask you is, is your relationship to Christ what it should be? Is it flourishing? Is it thriving? Is it, or is it floundering? Or maybe even failing miserably. I can tell you with total confidence that he wants it to be flourishing and thriving, amen? If it's not, all kinds of relational problems are going to occur. If that was one of Christ's last concerns before he left this earth, it ought to be one of our greatest concerns as we remain on this earth. Continuing fruitfulness is the concern of Christ. Is it your concern? Is it mine? In order to be in a fruitful relationship with Christ, we need to immerse ourselves in what Christ teaches in this passage. So let's kind of dive in here. First thing I want to point out to you is that flourishing fruitfulness in your Christian life requires constant cultivation in Christ. First three verses of John 15. And we're going to camp here for quite a while. I am the true vine and my father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that bears fruit, he prunes it so that it may bear more fruit. That's a tough verse. I wish it wasn't in this text. I wish I didn't have to deal with it. But I do, and I will. So you are already clean because of the word which I have spoken to you, Jesus says, and wrapping it up there in verse 3. So my dear friends, let me tell you this. If there's no gardener, there's no garden. Let's just start with that phrase again. These are difficult words to interpret. They're hard to accept. Nevertheless, they are words of truth, right? Jesus uses the illustration of a vine and branches to make his point and to drive it home. The vine was a very important symbol in Israel's history. The care of vines or vine dressing was one of the oldest forms of agriculture in the Old Testament. The very first thing that Noah planted after the flood was a vineyard. Came back to haunt him. But in Genesis chapter 9 verse 20, Noah planted a vineyard. A flourishing vine is the classic picture of spiritual fruitfulness. It is a symbol of life. A fruitless vine, in contrast, indicates spiritual barrenness. Okay? In numerous Old Testament texts, the vine was used specifically as a metaphor for Israel, God's people. In fact, it became so associated with Israel that it was minted on coins in Judea. In Jesus' time, the vine motif carried over and upon Herod's temple was a vine on the front of the holy place that was overlaid with gold that some have estimated to be worth over $12 million today by today's standards. Israel was God's vine. 
God used the vine as a beautiful figure of spiritual fruitfulness and blessing. But a vine that is unproductive, no matter how attractive or how attractively it is adorned, is spiritually worthless. And unfortunately, that was the case with Israel. Actually, it's an interesting fact that the symbol of the vine is never used in the Old Testament apart from the concept of spiritual degeneration. Interesting. Every Old Testament passage in which Israel is compared to a vine pictures the nation as faithless, fruitless, and the object of God's judgment. A vine that is unproductive is not of much worth, is it? Not much worth to the world, to the people of God, or to God himself. It's one of the saddest parables in the Old Testament. God laments the spiritual deficiency of what should have been a luxuriant garden. In Isaiah chapter 5, and verses 1 to 7, if you want to follow along, I'll read it to you. Let me now sing for my well-beloved a song of my beloved concerning his vineyard. My well-beloved had a vineyard on a fertile hill. He dug it all around, removed its stones, and planted it with the choicest vine. And he built a tower in the middle of it and also hewed out a wine vat in it. And then he expected it to produce good grapes, but it produced only worthless ones. And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. What more was there to do for my vineyard that I have not done in it? Why, when I expected it to produce good grapes, did it produce worthless ones? So now let me tell you what I'm going to do to my vineyard. I will remove its hedge and it will be consumed. I will break down its wall and it will become trampled ground. I will lay it waste. It will not be pruned or hoed, but briars and thorns will come up, and I will also charge the clouds to rain no rain upon it. For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel, and the men of Judah his delightful plant. Thus he looked for justice, but behold, bloodshed, for righteousness, but behold, a cry of distress. That's a very sad passage, isn't it? Israel, God's choice vine, failed to bear good fruit. It ran amok. In fact, it yielded the exact opposite of what was intended. The fruit was rotten, worthless. Therefore, he judged it, and a new vine was established. Now, this is the backdrop, okay, that I'm giving you, behind which Jesus declared in John 15, I am the true vine. The vine is Jesus. The vine is Jesus. Throughout his ministry, Jesus intimated that a person could no longer enjoy the blessing of God by merely being connected to the nation of Israel or being part of that nation or being a Jew. He or she, rather, must be connected to Christ to have spiritual life and bear spiritual fruit. That's what Jesus is saying in this text. Don't miss it. In the last 
of seven I am statements of John's gospel, Jesus identifies himself here as the true vine. Literally, he says, I am the vine, the true. There are no substitutes. Jesus is the real thing, the very one. He's not a symbolic vine. He is the true vine through which all of life and all of fruitfulness comes. And anyone connected to that vine will flourish, he says, with good fruit. Here's an interesting fact. You might think that a vine is long, a long winding limb that, that winds and sprawls along a trellis, right? That's what we think of when we think of vines, right? But actually, a vine in a vineyard is the trunk of the tree. It's the trunk of the plant that grows out of the ground. It ends in a large gnarl from which the branches grow out in every direction. Jesus is the trunk. Jesus is that vine, the trunk from which the branches grow. Get that picture in your mind? That image gives us much more clarity now as we move throughout the rest of this passage. Someone has said that vineyards are like windows to the soul. And it certainly was in Israel's case, but it was kind of misleading. Their faithlessness, however, found them out. Although they seemed like luxurious branches on the outside, their actions proved that their true vine dresser was not really the Lord. And they weren't really connected to the true vine, but their own selfish desires. Let me read to you a passage out of Hosea, chapter 10. The first two verses. I'm going to read it out of the New Living Translation. How prosperous Israel is. A luxuriant vine loaded with fruit. But the more wealth the people got, the more they poured it out on the altars of their foreign gods. The richer the harvests they brought in, the more beautiful the statues and the idols they built. The hearts of the people are fickle. They are guilty and they must be punished. The Lord will break down their foreign altars and smash their many idols. Friends, we're all connected to something, aren't we? Something drives us, something motivates us and fuels the direction of our lives. What are you connected to? What's your vine? Is it your home? Your family? Your friendships? Your bank account? Your church maybe? Are those the things that you try to derive your source of life from? Maybe you've attached yourself to a religious system or some specific denomination, and that has become your vine. If that's the case, I'm going to tell you right now, because Jesus says it, you're going to dry up and die spiritually. Contrary to what some have said, the local church is not the hope of the world. Jesus Christ operating through the local church, which is truly connected to him, is the hope of the world. Jesus Christ is the only vine that can sustain a fruitful life. 
No attachment on earth, whether religious or otherwise, can be a substitute for Jesus Christ. None. Unless you are vitally connected to him, the quality of your fruitfulness will be nil. Continuing fruitfulness comes only through an attachment to the true vine, which is Jesus Christ. And that's what verses 1 and 2 of John 15 says. I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away, and every branch that bears fruit, he prunes it so that it may, it may bear more fruit. So Jesus is the true vine, the Father is the vine dresser, and literally that means now that God is the proprietor, he's the gardener, and he's the cultivator. Okay, following me so far? I know this is being painfully straight here and simple, but you got to get this into your head. God is the expert at growing grapes, amen? His work consists of cutting and pruning, and he does it very well. As someone has said, when the divine owner takes possession of a property, he has a twofold objective, intense cultivation and abounding fruitfulness. That's his purpose. That's his interest. He's not interested in, in barren branches that sap the strength of the fruit-producing ones. And so, what does he do, it says here? Jesus says he cuts, them, cuts it away. Cuts them away. His main concern is fruit-bearing branches. So, he prunes them and he trims them back so that they will produce even more. Okay? It's all important as we go into verse 2. Verse 2. And here's my take. He cuts off false followers. I need to say this at the beginning that there are other interpretations for this verse. I don't buy them. And we're going to get into more of that next week. But here's my point. He cuts off the false followers in verse 2. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. Genuine Christ followers are identified by fruit. Plain and simple. The life of Christ is visible in them. Now, I don't believe that Jesus was talking about two kinds of Christians here. Kinds that don't bear fruit and kinds that do. Even just saying that sounds ludicrous to me. Out loud, hearing it. I'm convinced that he was talking about two totally groups of people here. True believers who yield the fruit of Christ-likeness and another group who merely think that they're Christians, who play the game real well, but whose life source is not Christ and therefore are not producing anything of true spiritual value. The phrase here, and I know everybody's thinking about it, in me, in this verse, doesn't necessarily have to mean that they are genuine believers but only that they are superficially connected to Christ by some sort of profession. Like a dead branch on a blossoming apple tree. 
right? I got a tree on my front lawn, an old apple tree. And more and more, year after year, there are more dead branches on it. Some of them bear fruit, but there's a lot of dead ones. And I've been saying, we got to cut that thing down. I got somebody else in the congregation that says, no, 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 don't cut it down. We'll cut the dead ones away and see if it comes back to life. You see how John 15 is so relevant? But like a dead branch on a blossoming apple tree, there is a, this visible, tangible attachment, but there is no life surging through that branch. And I believe that there is a clear scriptural warrant for making the claim that I'm making here. Good fruit is the dividing line between the true believers in Christ and false believers. Matthew chapter 7. Again, don't write this passage off because you know it and it might be familiar to you. Follow along with me from verse 15. Beware the false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will know them by their fruits. Grapes are not gathered from thorn bushes nor figs from thistles, are they? So every good tree bears good fruit, but the bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot produce bad fruit, nor can a bad tree produce good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. So then you will know them by their fruits. And then Jesus says these words. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven will enter. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name cast out demons and in your name perform many miracles and I will then declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. They weren't really connected. They were attached superficially but not connected to Jesus. In John 15, Jesus says that these so-called branches that aren't producing any fruit will be taken away. Now that word can be translated lift up or picked up and some people think that that's what it means, that it is true believers and that those that aren't producing fruit, the Lord picks them up and cleans them off and, you know, Wires them up to a trellis so that they can produce more fruit. Don't believe it. I don't believe it because the other translation of this word means to remove and to destroy. Depends on the context. Jesus doesn't say that he fixes them up here. What does Jesus say that he does with them? He takes them away. And then down, later on, down in the text, we're going to find out that they're cast, gathered up, cast into the fire and burned. He cuts them off. The Living Bible say, translates this this way. He lops off every branch that doesn't produce. Let me tell you another reason why I believe that we're talking about unbelievers. Think of the greater context of this text. Just hours before Jesus gave this, Jesus announced that there was a traitor on the team. 
In John 13, 10, Jesus said, and you are clean, but not all of you. Who is he talking about? Judas. A couple of chapters later in John 17, in verse 12, Jesus said, not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction. Judas had no fruit because Judas had no faith. His real God was greed, and as a result, he was cut off and thrown into the fire. John the Baptist shook up the religious crowd when he said this in Matthew chapter 3, verse 10. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. This is similar to what we read in Romans chapter 11 and verse 20, where Israel is pictured as an olive tree, and some branches are broken off because of unbelief. In their place, believing Gentiles are grafted in. This is shocking to many Jewish people because they think that they're good to go because they were attached to the olive tree superficially. But if they don't confess Christ, Scripture says they'll be cut off, that they're not really true branches. So as one pastor makes the application, and I agree... Some of you are holding on to your church background even though you might not have Christian belief. You can be connected to a church and not be converted. You might think, well, I've been Baptist all my life. I'm a Christian. But there's no fruit in your life. Let me say it this way. If you don't have any fruit, it might be because you don't have saving faith. That is what I believe that Jesus is getting at here. Only he's talking about the nation of Israel. There's a sense of finality in Jesus' words here in John 15. These are not believers in my opinion. They are professing believers who are not true because they bear no fruit. Every authentic believer bears fruit. That's not my opinion. That's the word of God. Verse 8, my father is glorified by this, that you bear much fruit. And then what's it say? And so prove to be my disciples. Every believer bears fruit. Sometimes you have to look hard to see it, no question about that. And sometimes it takes a really long time for it to blossom. But there will be fruit just read Psalm 1 this week in the first three verses. God's serious about fruit bearing. His patience is great, but his judgment is also sure. Look at Luke chapter 13. Luke chapter 13, verse 6. I'm going to call this the uh, parable of delayed judgment. Chapter 13, verse 6 of Luke's gospel. And he began telling this parable. A man had a fig tree which had been planted in his vineyard. And he came looking for fruit on it and he did not find any. And he said to the vine keeper, the vineyard keeper, Behold, for three years I have come looking for fruit on this fig tree without finding anything. Cut it down. Why does it even use up the ground? And he answered and he said to him, Let it alone, sir, for this year too until I dig around it and put in fertilizer. And if it bears fruit next year, fine. But if not, cut it down. 
God is long-suffering and God is patient. But there comes a time where if there's no fruit, it's clear there's no faith. So that begs the question then, we're talking about all this fruitfulness, what is fruit? Yeah, asking that question? What does it look like? Well, look, first of all, let me tell you what fruit isn't, okay? One pastor I read uh, did an excellent job outlining this, so I'm just passing it on to you. Number one, it is not success. It isn't success. Sometimes bigger is not better, folks. There are huge cults that obviously are not connected to the true vine. Some missionaries toil for years and years and years on the mission field, and you never see one single convert, but they have laid all the groundwork for someone else to come in and reap the harvest. You cannot always measure fruit by outward success. Number two, it isn't sensationalism. Just because hundreds of people jump on the bandwagon of a certain ministry and are zealous for a cause does not necessarily constitute spiritual fruit. Thirdly, it's not simulation. We can counterfeit fruit, you know. It's not good fruit but it looks good to people that are unsuspecting. It may look and smell and taste like genuine fruit, but it may be artificial flavoring. Every person is unique, and God works through each of us individually using our gifts to produce fruit for him. I may not be able to do what another pastor can do. If I try to simulate his fruit, I'd burn myself out. You may not be able to do what I can do or what someone else you know can do. Don't attempt to produce fruit that looks good but is artificial. Keep connected to Christ and the fruit will come as a natural, supernatural result. Let Christ work through who you are. We're not commanded to produce fruit, by the way. Don't get, don't get me wrong when I'm preaching this message and go home and feel like, oh, now I gotta go out and produce some fruit. You, the scriptures do not command us to produce fruit. Get that in your head. What the scripture commands us to do and what Jesus commands us to do is to abide in the only one that can make it happen. The fruit born on our branches is his fruit. It's not ours. Woodrow Crowell made this great point years ago when he said, what he does not do does not last. What he does not do does not last. Having said what it's not, let me tell you what the Bible describes as bona fide fruit. The Bible talks a great deal about the fruit that we as Christians bear. And I'm going to call that, I'm going to give them a title. It's called the seven G's of a fruitful life. Okay, here they are. Godly conduct and character. In the Gospels, we read about the fruits in keeping with repentance. In Matthew 3, verse 8, and Luke chapter 3. All the concrete and practical evidences of a changed relationship with God through Christ-like actions, which the Bible also calls the fruit of righteousness. You look up that phrase, Philippians 1.11, Hebrews 12.11, James chapter 3, verse 18, 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 5 to 8. These are all part of godly conduct and character. Secondly, God-centered glory is a fruit. Another type of fruit spoken in the New Testament in Hebrews 13, 
15. It's the fruit of lips that confess his name. Thirdly, gathering of souls is fruit. People that we've introduced to Christ and helped them to become his committed followers. Those are considered fruit in the New Testament. John 4.36, Romans 1.13 if you're taking notes. 1 Corinthians 16.15, talk about converts and believers and disciples that you make as fruit. Fourthly, giving to others, financial support and assistance to fellow believers is fruit. You support a child, like Marilee talked about today. You give sacrificially to God's work. That's fruit if it's done with, with the right heart, out of love. Romans 15, 26 to 28, and Philippians 4, 17. Good works are considered fruit, according to Colossians 1, 10. Godly works are considered to be fruit produced through the Spirit, through the believer. They are outward active results of an inward attitude of faith. Sixthly, godly attitudes. Fruit of the Spirit that Paul talks about in Galatians chapter 5, verses 22 to 23. These are all character traits of the Christian that make up that inward attitude. And without these spiritual, relational, and personal virtues produced within us by the Holy Spirit, the outward aspects of spiritual fruit could never be accomplished. And then finally, godly teaching. And we just looked at that passage in Matthew chapter 7, verse 16 and verse 20. Godly teaching is considered fruit in the scripture. That is flourishing fruit. Is God producing any of those things in your life? See, we're called to bear good fruit for God. Verse 16 in this passage, John 15. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you would go and bear fruit and that your fruit would remain so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give to you. Don't miss the seriousness of Jesus' words in John chapter 15. Those who do not bear fruit, Jesus says, God takes them away. As the master vine dresser, God not only cuts off the false followers, but he also, secondly, cultivates the true ones. Second part of verse 2. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that bears fruit, he prunes it so that it may bear more fruit. I don't like that word prune, do you? You know, many Christians, Warren Wisby said, pray that God would make them more fruitful, but they do not enjoy the pruning process that follows that prayer. The vine dresser prunes the branches in two ways, it says here. He cuts, away, he cuts away dead wood that can breed disease and insects, and he cuts away living tissue so that the life of the vine will not be so dissipated that the quality of the crop will be jeopardized. In fact, the vine dresser will even cut away whole bunches of grapes, fruit, so that the rest of the crop will be of higher quality. God wants both quantity and quality. The pruning process is the most important part of the whole enterprise here, and the people who do it must be carefully trained or they can destroy an entire crop. Speaking of literal vine dressing now. Some vineyards invest two or three years in training pruners so they know where to cut, how much to cut, 
and even at what angle to make the cut, okay? Now let me say this in the spiritual side of things. Note here in John 15. This passage of scripture is so detailed and it's so important that we get this right. Note that it's God who does the pruning. Okay? Not your pastor. Not your spouse. Not anybody else. He may work through them. But friends, my, if my life is going to be trimmed by anyone, I want it to be done by the God who loves me <laughs> with an everlasting love. Amen? And when he works through people to do that pruning in that way, it works. You can always tell when you're being pruned by somebody else and it's not God who's behind it. Right? Well, you can't always tell. But a lot of times you can. The word prunes here means to render pure, to cleanse from filth, to purge. Pruning hurts, but it also helps. You know, it's good for us. I hesitate to say that. <laughs> but it is good for us. It makes us better producers. Those who are bearing fruit for God are constantly being pruned. So don't be surprised if when you're staying closely connected to Christ, you experience all kinds of painful trials. God is constantly pruning us back that we may produce more bountiful harvests. Amen? Amen. I read something this week that really struck me. You know what the greatest judgment God would allow to fall on us would be? To leave us alone. To leave us alone. To let us grow in any direction that we want to. The Father does not jeopardize our lives by pruning us. He would jeopardize our lives if he didn't prune us. As Warren Wiersbe again put it, that your heavenly Father is never nearer to you than when he is pruning you. I once caught my wife picking the flowers off some beautiful strawberry plants and I thought she was crazy. Not really, but I said, what are you doing? You know, it shows you how much I know about gardening. She patiently explained that first year plants need to be radically pruned so that the next year they'll produce even more fruit. So an untrimmed vine will develop long branches called sucker shoots that sap its strength and make it unable to produce large crops. Most of its strengths end up being given to the growing dead wood. It must be pruned back. So God does that in our lives and in the church. And he will radically remove things that sap your strength and mine and hinder our effectiveness. In pruning, writes Nancy Guthrie, God cuts away commitments that would sap you of your time and energy for him. He severs relationships that are not nourishing to growth. He clips your wings so in the stillness you can hear his voice. He prunes. He purges. And sometimes, most of the time, it hurts. C.S. Lewis said, pain insists upon being attended to. 
God whispers to us in our pleasures, speaks in our conscience, but shouts to us in our pain. It is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. Sometimes our father has to shout at us to get our attention. And he uses painful circumstances and pruning to do that. So, let me ask you, is everything going haywire in your life right now? Is God trying to get your attention? Is he shouting to you? Because, you know, just read Hebrews chapter 12, verses 5 to 11. It talks about God disciplining legitimate sons and daughters. And if he didn't do that, then we'd be questioning whether or not we are really his children. You know, I was going to read the passage, but it's getting late. You can read it on your own. Hebrews 12, 5 through 11. God is intimately interested in his vineyard. He wants a luscious crop, you see. And so he prunes us. Sometimes he uses people, painful circumstances, and affliction, but he ultimately he does it through his word. Through his word. Verse 3. You are already clean because of the word which I have spoken to you. That word clean literally means pruned like a branch. Charles Spurgeon once said this. He said, it is his word that prunes the Christian. It is the truth that purges him. The scripture made living and powerful by the Holy Spirit. Affliction is the handle of the knife. Affliction is the grindstone that sharpens the word. Affliction is the dresser that removes our soft garments and lays bare the diseased flesh so that the surgeon's knife may get at it. Affliction merely makes us ready to feel the word, but the true pruner is the word in the hand of the great vine dresser. That's why Spurgeon was such a great orator. He had a way with words. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12 says this, For the word that God speaks is alive and active. It cuts more keenly than any two-edged sword. It strikes through to the place where the soul and spirit meet, to the innermost intimacies of a man's being. It exposes the very thoughts and motives of a man's heart. That's the word. And God's purpose in pruning us is that we would bear more fruit. So here's some additional not-so-thrilling news for you. This one really struck me. In Secrets of the Vine, Bruce Wilkinson writes this. He said, did you know that growers prune their vineyards more intensively as the vines age? Great. One horticultural bulletin I read explained why the vine's ability to produce growth increases each year, but without intensive pruning, the plant weakens and the crop diminishes. Mature branches must be pruned hard in order to yield maximum results. This is not looking good for retirement time. Right? Immature pruning, the pruning will intensify as God's shears cut closer to the core of who you are. God isn't trying to just take away. He's faithfully at work to make room to add strength, to add productivity and spiritual power in our lives. His goal is to bring us closer to the perfect and complete image of Christ, right? 
So are you painfully aware of his pruning in your life right now? Are the afflictions in your life driving you to the word or driving you up the wall? Which one? God may be cutting away some junk that is sapping your strength and preventing you from being bearing tremendous fruit for his kingdom. Look, don't ignore the process. Let God have his way. Because God's going to break us one way or the other. We're either going to submit to it willingly or he's going to have to force it on us. And trust me, you don't want that. So don't avoid or ignore the process. Let me close with this. Churchgoer wrote a letter to the editor of a newspaper and complained that it made no sense to go to church every Sunday. I've gone for 30 years now, he wrote, and in the time that I have gone, I have heard something like 3,000 or more sermons, but for the life of me, I can't remember a single one of them. So I think I'm wasting my time, and the pastors are wasting theirs by giving sermons at all. By the way, this is the current trend today, by the way. This started a real controversy in the letters to the editor column, much to the delight of the editor. It went on for weeks until finally someone wrote the clincher. Quote, I've been married for 30 years now, and in that time my wife has cooked some 32,000 meals. But for the life of me, I can't recall the entire menu for a single one of those meals. But I do know this, they all nourished me and they all gave me the strength I needed to do my work. If my wife had not given me these meals, I would be physically dead today. Likewise, if I had not gone, gone to church for spiritual nourishment, I would be spiritually dead today. Amen. Fruitfulness for Christ, Jesus says, requires Constant cultivation by God. So keep yourself under the pruning process of the word, whether it's in a small group or coming to church on Sundays or interacting with your fellow believers, but keep yourself under it because it cleanses, it purifies, and it nourishes us. And gathering together as a church is one way that that happens. And the Bible says, don't forsake it. Don't forsake it. Because continuing fruitfulness also demands a constant connection to Jesus, and that's what we're going to take up next week. So let's just close now in prayer. Would you join me? I want to pray these words from a wonderful Bible that I have on my shelf called the Worship Bible, and I'd like to pray that as our closing prayer. Jesus, Lord Jesus, many other vines contend for my allegiance, but they promise what they cannot deliver. Remain in me, says my job, and you will find true success. Make us top priority, says my family, and you will find unmatched love. Stick with me, says my religious tradition, and you will enjoy the deepest spiritual experiences. Plug into status or riches or pleasure, says this world, and you will find yourself. But all of these vines, dear Lord, even those created for our good, cannot compete with you. You alone are the true vine. In you alone do I find my rightful place in this world. Through your strength alone will my brief life count for eternity. And so, Lord, I choose 
by your grace to remain in you, to make my home in you forever. Amen.